To start off this morning, um, I want y'all to take a moment just to think about the word hope. <coughs> think about what that means to you, what comes to your mind, and try not to think about the uh, cliche answer or what you think is the right answer. I just want to pause for a moment and give everybody time to think, <coughs> what does that word mean to you? So when I thought about this, there were several phrases that just immediately came to my mind. The things that we say all day long. Hey, I hope you have a great day. Hope, you know, things go well for you. I hope you um, feel better soon. I hope that you have a great vacation. I hope you have great weather on your vacation. These are the ways that I constantly use hope throughout my day. And um, if you look in the dictionary at the word hope, there's two kind of main categories of definitions for hope. So the first one is this idea of um, hope being to want something to happen or to be true, to think that it could possibly happen or be true, this feeling of wanting something to happen, right? And that is the hope that we probably interact with the most, right? It's a wishful thinking. It's um, very much rooted in outcomes and circumstances, right? It's a hope tied to how we hope things go, and it's always good, right? Um, and there's also a hope that we have that is our longings and desires, right? We hope to get married someday. We hope to have children and a family. We hope our children turn out well. We hope that um, we get a great bonus this year and we get promoted, right? So a hope that is tied to our circumstances and our outcomes, and it really is this fluffy thing, though, because it's, it's not really rooted in any promise or certainty of what the future holds. At the very best, it might be rooted in your own abilities and what you think you deserve, right, or what others think you deserve. But when you look at the Bible and the hope that Scripture talks to us about, it is something very different than this idea of hope. The images that the Bible um, shares with us about hope shows a hope that is rooted in the promises and the character of God, something that is rock solid and sure. It uses the imagery of an anchor that, um, that will steady you, that will hold in a storm. It uses a, an image of an unbreakable spiritual lifeline, almost like a, a tether. You know, if you've ever been repelling or something, you know, you're, you're not repelling unless you can really believe with confidence in that tether that you are holding on to. And so scripture presents something very different than this first definition that fits more in line with the second definition of hope. That is to say, hope is to trust. It is a confident expectation and an assurance of future good. And that is like a really substantive, powerful definition, if it, if it is true, right? Because there's not a lot of things in our life that we have confident expectation and assurance of future good, right? We might have confident expectation um, that one day our car will break down. One day, um, you know, someone will die in our life. One day we will die. We can have confidence and we have to pay our taxes in a couple weeks, right? These things that are not good things that we look forward to, right? And 
So in thinking about that, um, I thought about the song Cherry Blossoms that we sing here sometimes. And this idea that in the winter, which I absolutely hate winter, um, I hate how short the days are and the lack of sunlight and you know, my kids can't go out and play and I get cabin fever and I can make it through Christmas, but by January, February, I am, I am done. And yet every year I do know that spring will come. I know that I feel the days start to get longer. It starts to warm up, right? You see the daffodil shoots coming up and you know it's coming. There was never a spring that you thought, you know, or a winter that you thought, I'm not really sure if spring will happen this year, right? You know, even if it delays, you do know that it will come. And even yesterday and this morning when you woke up to like 20 degree temperatures, none of us thought, oh shoot, Maybe we're going to go back into winter, right? We know we are headed to warmth and sunshine and things bursting with life. And yet, we don't have that kind of confident assurance and expectation in a lot of things in life. And that is the hope that the Bible speaks of. That is the hope that it says Christ is meant to be for us. But I, don't, I think this is what we do, because if we're so good at the first one, I think that we tend to do one of two things. I think we tend to take this idea of hoping in God, right? And we turn it into, <clears throat> we apply and filter it through this first definition where hoping in God is just a wishful prayer, right? It's hoping that maybe if God is God and he's got some power, maybe he can work this thing out for you. Um, we don't, we don't really rely on God. We don't really feel certain of who he is and what he has to offer us. Or we do another thing. We do, we do go with the second definition, this confident expectation, but we, the, our shift is subtle, right? So it's this confident expectation, but it's not in God himself. It is in what we want from God what we want and think he ought to do for us. So we take this confident assurance and we apply it to our circumstances. We take the verse in the Bible that says, God will give you the desires of your heart, and we pull it out of context, and we think he is our golden ticket. With God, my life will be perfect now, right? Well, that's very disappointing because we all know that's not how it goes. And so that just leads to disappointment and having a very jaded view of God and jaded expectations and that's not at all what this hope is about and that's not at all what Jesus promises us in fact if anything in the Bible Jesus said to his disciples and, and to us that in this life you will you are guaranteed trouble and hardships and despair you're guaranteed those things but in the midst of that he said but take heart because I offer you a hope a rugged hope a confident assurance of a future good. And so Jesus doesn't come to us offering this hope that's a way around pain or a way out of it. He offers us a hope that is actually a way through it and a confidence that there can be good in the midst of it and there can be good on the, there not can be, there is good in the midst of it and there is good on the other side of it. <clears throat> We're in the midst of a series here, we're getting towards the end of a series called Something Else, where we've been looking at the miracles and the signs of Jesus recorded in the um, John's Gospel account. 
And um, so as we've been looking at that, these signs and these miracles, they, they point to more than, they're more than just a miracle. They're pointing to something else. They're pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, and they're also pointing to the life that he is offering us. And if you read in the Bible, in the accounts of Jesus' life, you will see that time and again, Jesus' disciples and followers, the people that put their hope and their faith in him, they still had this way of, of um, diminishing who Jesus was and what he came to do. There's, our minds make it smaller, right? So this idea of the Messiah, we have, this, we have a bigger understanding. Jesus came to, for the cross. He came for ultimate salvation for all of us, right? But we, they made it, oh, he came to be the Messiah, this political leader, and oh, the Jerusalem. And they, they made it so small, you know? And, and we do the same thing. So we take this offer of hope that God offers us, and we make it our wishful thinking. We make it a prayer and a, um, you know, God is maybe our, our golden ticket. Maybe he can come through and make this thing happen for us. And it is something else, and it is so much more. So I want to look at that today, and we're going to look at that by looking at um, a miracle in the book of John in chapter 11. Before we get into that, I'm going to kind of set that up a little bit. So it starts off in John <coughs> where Jesus is out teaching and um, he, he receives word that his dear friend Lazarus, a friend that he loves deeply, is very ill. And Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, are the ones that send this message. And you may be familiar with Mary and Martha, that they were, um, they're recorded elsewhere and they're dear friends of Jesus. He loves them deeply. And... Um, and so this word comes that Lazarus is very ill, and Jesus delays going. Um, and, and Lazarus lives in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was getting to be a pretty dangerous place for Jesus because there was a lot of people there that didn't like him. And the last time he was there, they actually tried to stone him. So his disciples are glad, like, okay, good, we're not going to go. And they've seen Jesus heal before without showing up, right? Jesus can just say the word. So Jesus says this. Um, he says to his disciples, the sickness is not fatal. It, is become, it will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying his son. So his disciples think, okay, great. We're not going to go to Jerusalem. Well, two days pass, and then Jesus says, guess what, guys? We are going to Bethany. And um, he tells them that Lazarus is dead, and he's going to go there to wake him up. So we pick up there, and I am reading from the message. So we start... In verse 17, it says, When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already dead for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple miles away, and there were many Jews that were visiting Martha and Mary, <coughs> sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming, and she went out to meet him, and Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will be raised up. And Martha replies, I know he will be raised up at the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait to the end, Martha. I am right now resurrection and life. And the one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me will not ultimately die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Master, all along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After saying this, she went with her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and he is asking for you. The moment that she heard this, Mary jumped up and she ran out to meet him. Jesus had not yet entered the town. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw her run, they followed her, thinking that she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting, and she fell at his feet. Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her sobbing, the Jews sobbing with him, a deep anger welled within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said, and now Jesus wept. The Jews said, Look how deeply he loved him. And others among them said, Well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he's opened the eyes of the blind. Then Jesus, in anger again, welling within him, arrived at the tomb. There was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. He said, Remove the stone. Now the sister of the dead man, Martha, she said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, he said, go ahead and take away the stone. And they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know that you always do, but on the account of this crowd standing here, I have spoken that they might believe that you have sent me. And he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him loose. So how I want to more closely examine this passage, I want to start <coughs> by looking at how, I want to look at how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha in their, in their despair and in their anguish. And curiously, I think it's, it's interesting that both of the sisters come to Jesus with saying the same thing. They both come to him and say, Jesus, if only you had been here. If only you had been here, this would not have happened. <clears throat> so we see this sense of their hope is tied to Jesus, but it also is tied to what, what they hoped and wanted Jesus to do for them, right? And so we begin by looking at Martha, because Jesus responds very differently to the two sisters. To Martha, she comes and she says, Jesus, if you had been here. And he responds to her, almost arguing with her. And if you remember from other accounts in the New Testament about Martha, that was very fitting, right? Because Martha was a busybody, and she was in her head, and she probably liked a good argument. And so she comes and she says, um, he says to her, and, that, and arguing with her, but in tenderness and in, in kindness, right? He says, um, Jesus says, your brother will be raised up, Martha. Your brother will be raised up. Now you have to remember, it's easy for us to like make Bible people different from us, and as if she knows what's going to happen. Like, oh, you're going to raise him from the dead a little bit. Like, no one had ever done that before. Or since. Right? She's, not, she's thinking, I know you've healed people, but now he's dead, and dead is dead. And so, now, now what do we do? And he says, your brother will be raised up. And so Martha kind of responds in a way that I think is similar to how you or I might respond in the face of great loss. She essentially says, 
She, she is downcast and she is dejected. And she says, yeah, yeah, I know I'll see him again in heaven someday. And that is much like us, right? It's like, I, I know that, but that isn't really helping me right now because I'm hurting. And I could almost picture Jesus cupping her face, lifting up her face and saying, Martha, I am, I am the resurrection. I'm the reason there will be a resurrection. I am standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am, I am. And I'm here. I'm with you. Lift up your head, Martha. Look at me. Hope is right here in front of you. And so Jesus enters Martha's despair with hope. It reminds me of a passage in Lamentations that says, Jeremiah, who wrote it, is rehearsing all these horrible things that have happened to him. And he says, I remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of God's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Jesus comes and he offers this hope that is bigger than our circumstances. It interrupts our circumstances. And it informs our circumstances. It's something that when life is upside down, we can call to mind and we can have hope. And Martha walks away with peace. She doesn't know what he's about to do, but she walks away saying, I know you are the Messiah, the promised one. So then comes Mary, and Mary comes, she comes running, she jumps up, she runs, she's weeping. A crowd of people come with her sobbing and weeping, right? And she falls at his feet, and in sobs and with great emotion, she says, Jesus, if only you had been here. If only you had been here. And Jesus is moved. He is moved with compassion. He is moved to tears. And he enters into her despair and her grief. And he weeps and he mourns alongside of her. You have to remember that he is God. He knows what he is about to do. He has, he never loses sight of this confident assurance of future good. And yet he still enters into her grief with her. It reminds me of a couple years ago, my youngest daughter almost drowned. We were at a pool in a friend's house, and the girls were all eating popsicles. And I'm sitting there talking to my friend, and I just happen to look over, and I see this little head bobbing in the water that looks an awful lot like my middle child who does know how to swim. But I'm thinking, why isn't she coming up? Why isn't she coming up? And then I see my middle daughter and realize that's my baby that's in the pool. And I fully dressed in jeans and shoes, I jump in and I scoop her up and I'm shaking and I'm sobbing. And she's fine. But for days, I would just burst into tears over that. I would tell that to someone else. I'd share that with my husband. And the emotion would just well up. Even though I knew she was fine, right? And I think in that same way, when even though Jesus was confident and assured of what he was about to do, he still fully entered in to her pain because he, because he loved Lazarus, because he loved her. You cannot, cannot 
hope in God because he's God and he can do some stuff. Our hope is in God because we believe that he cares for us. You cannot hope in God if you do not believe that he doesn't see you and know you and care deeply for you. So one thing that the message does really well that's kind of lost in other translations is um, Eugene Peterson uh, translates this idea that Jesus, in his sobbing, there was a deep anger that welled within him. The, the word, Greek word is to bellow with anger. And <clears throat> twice he uses that in this picture of Jesus entering into the grief and the despair with this weeping mixed with a bellowing of anger. And I try to imagine what that looks like, that scene of despair and grief. And I think back to some times in my own life that I truly have been overcome with grief in a way that I have wept and bellowed with anger. The first that comes to my mind is um, just a couple years ago when we learned that a dear friend of ours was um, diagnosed with a reoccurrence of cancer and the prognosis was not good. His wife was pregnant and months later he died. And that is a moment that I wept with bellowed anger. Another is um, when I learned that uh, a family in this community lost their baby in the middle of the night that he died. I wept and bellowed with anger. And Jesus entered into their despair, weeping and bellowing with anger. What was he angry at? He was angry at death. He was angry at the effect of sin on this life, the pain and the grief and the sorrow that they were experiencing, that you and I are experiencing. He's anger at, angry at the evil of cancer. He's angry at the grown woman that bears the scars and wounds of being abused as a child. He's angry that death left a woman widowed and left children fatherless. He's angry at the destruction and the devastation of infidelity, at the constant ache of losing a child, the constant ache of longing for a child. He enters into your despair and my despair, bellowing with anger. And yet the cynic in us, the skeptic, <clears throat> from this place of wounds says, oh yeah, well, why doesn't he intervene? If he's God, why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? And that's at the heart of Mary and Martha's lament, too. Right? They say, if you had been here, God, where were you if you would have intervened? We need you to show up. And that's at the heart of the song the band played, Prayer and See. Oh, yeah, you never said a word. You didn't send me no letter. Don't think I could forgive you. See, the world is slowly dying. I'm not wasting no more time. Don't think I could believe you. And the conclusion we come to in that is in God, you're either absent or you're unkind because a good God would not let this happen. A good God would step in. So we don't believe he's angry at the evil of the world. In fact, we oftentimes hold him responsible for it. We think God should step in and wipe out the evil. He should deal with the Hitlers. He should deal with the child abusers. And yet that logic breaks down because what about us? Where does that end? 
How ought he deal with the evil in you and in me? How ought he deal with the poisonous words I speak, with my unforgiveness and my cruelty, with my dishonesty, with the wounds I inflict on others? Where does that end? You see, it is the kindness and mercy of God. It is for your benefit and mine that Jesus did not come to bring judgment, but that he came to bear our judgment. And so Jesus moves forward and he calls out Lazarus and he raises him from the dead. And at that point, there's all these the Jews that are there gathered and many of them are amazed and they put their faith in God and Jesus. And yet there's others that leave and they go home and they say, oh, he has gone too far. They rally in Jerusalem and they say, this is it. This guy's too much of a threat. It's time for us to do something about it. And it says from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus knew that this would happen. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus knew that the only way to raise Lazarus from the dead was to put himself in it, the grave. He knew the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause his own. He knew that if he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment we deserve. See, Jesus did not only enter your despair with truth and with compassion and bellowing with anger. Jesus enters our despair with great rescue. I want you to think for a moment about a, moment, a time in your life of great despair. Maybe it's right now. I want you to picture it, and I want you to think, where is Jesus? Do you believe that he is there? Do you believe that he is, comes to you in your despair with truth and compassion, bellowing with tears and with rescue? About 15 years ago, I um, <clears throat> was in a very dark place of depression. It lasted for about six or nine months, and um, it was a darkness like nothing else I've ever experienced. Um, and in that time, I had some physical symptoms going on in my body and I, that aligned with a particular disease, and I became certain that I had this disease. And I was wrecked with fear, and I had no vision for my future. Good. Just visions of pain and sorrow and no hope. And um, at that time, many friends and family encouraged me. I remember my grandmother wrote me a letter almost every day with scripture and with words of hope and promise. And yet the thing that stands out the most to me was my roommate that sat down with me at the kitchen table one day and I'm pouring out kind of my fears and my anxieties and she looked me in the eyes and she said something that at the moment felt so cruel. She said, Holly, you may have that disease. You may. That is not the worst thing that could happen to you. And I remember thinking, no, you're supposed to tell me, no, look, you don't have that. This, you're just not thinking straight. You know, that's what everyone else is telling me. You're going to get through this. But she stared me in the face and said the thing that I knew was possibly true. Like, good things, bad things do happen to good people. Bad things happen to everyone. So why am I any different? And she said, it may be the case. But it is not the worst thing that could happen to you. You have Jesus. You have a living hope with you and for you. And that is something 
that will not let go of you. And the worst thing that could happen to you is to not have him, is to let go of that. It is not this disease that you are fearing. To be without God, that is despair. To be without hope. You know, I um, think back, not, not, I think back to when I first went off to college and when I was newly married, and I think back to just a couple years ago when I had the flu for a week. Anytime that I'm ever sick, there is something in me that wants my mom. I want her to come. And it, it stops surprising me that, I, that it happens. But every time I just think, oh, and I am a big baby, but I just think, oh, I wish my mom was here. Hold my hair back while I throw up or bring me a towel or some Sprite with a little straw. And it's not that my mom is going to, like, make me better. It's not that the sickness is going to go away. There is just, there is just a comfort and an assurance in her presence with me. And that is what God offers you. God, there's a scripture in the Psalms that says, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is our good. That's why we have a future good, because he's our good now. He's our good when life turns upside down. He's our good tomorrow. He's our good in the future. He's our good in the past. God with us is our hope and our good. Not what he will do for us, but the living God that came down to rescue us, that enters into our despair in beautiful ways. He is with you, and he is your rugged hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you offer. Move us away from this fluffy version of hope that we put on you. Move us deeper into knowing you in a way that transforms our life and gives us a hope so much bigger. Help us to know the reality that you are with us, that you are our living hope, and that you are enough. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I pray that you will go out from here today growing deeper and deeper in the knowledge and the understanding and experience of this living hope that Christ offers you. I pray that you would be able to join in the psalm that says, the nearness of God is my good, that that would truly be the cry of your heart and true for you personally and your, your anthem, that others would so see the hope that you have and want to know the source of your great hope. Go in peace and go in hope.